Pastor Potter. He is very good at what he does, so you're going to enjoy this morning. Okay, we got a lot to cover in Sunday school, so this is where we're headed. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time allowing you to get there, except on this first one. So open your Bibles to Isaiah 64, verse 8. One of the things I'm going to do uh, throughout the entire day is sprinkle a little bit about my personal testimony throughout these messages. And uh, Pastor, uh, Brother Caleb, and I both encourage you at any time, it's not going to bother me if you get up and move closer or to a place where you can see better. Because a big part of what you're going to get today is what you see. And if you can't see it, then you're not going to get it. So uh, enough said about that. Uh, I did not grow up in a Christian family, but I did make a profession of faith uh, when I was at the University of Minnesota. And that was in, uh, I was in my mid-20s when that happened. Shortly after that, I got into pottery, met my wife, got married, moved to South Florida, opened a pottery shop, and then 30 years speed by, and finally in 2003, when I'm in my mid-50s, I surrendered to the Lord. Now, that may not be very clear to you right now, but there's a big difference between surrendering to salvation and actually surrendering to serve the Lord. And he wants you to do both of those things, but let me put it this way, surrendering to salvation is a one-time decision. Surrendering to serve the Lord, that's a kind of moment-by-moment decision. So I hope you understand that difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the day you've given us. I thank you for the, just the strength on behalf of all these people, the strength, the health to come here this morning. I thank you for those that have actually sacrificed their time to be in Sunday school, Lord, and I pray, pray that you would bless them for that sacrifice. Uh, Lord, I ask you to help me just to be that vessel, that empty vessel that you might use for your purposes. Help us all to understand on a, maybe a little deeper level what it means to stand before you one day at a judgment seat. And Lord, help us to get prepared for that judgment. I ask that you'll uh, be pleased with everything that's said and done during this day. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I, uh, when I did surrender in 2003, the Lord led me to go to Bible school. And he, went, he wanted me to go to Bible school for one reason. Because for 30 plus years, being a professing Christian, I really never spent much time in my Bible. I hardly ever went to church. I obviously didn't witness to people or do all the things that a believer should be doing. So, 2003, I surrendered to the Lord. I find myself at Pensacola Bible Institute in 2004. And uh, I didn't know at the time, but you kind of automatically get signed up for all the classes there. One of those classes was called Preacher and His Problems, and that involved having to get ready to give a sermon. And that we were given that assignment the very first night of class, and we had like two weeks to get ready. Well, one of the things you should know about me is I was deathly afraid of speaking out or speaking in front of people, especially about something I knew very little about, which would have been the Bible. Uh, I was almost have panic-stricken, and fortunately, I was at a little fellowship that they have there called Pea Ridge, and I heard some of the, uh, actually a recent graduate from our school had just given a message. Now, what you've just seen me make is a little miniature vase, and um, I'm going to cut it off here. I'm trying to demonstrate a couple of things. Number one, this clay is very soft. It only takes a little pressure to bend it and shape it. 
going to cut this off. Going to compare it to this one that's a little smaller. But a major difference is this one. It's hard, right? You might think, well, it's finished. Well, I'm going to put this in this vat of water, and you're going to see over the course of the next 10 or 15 minutes that that vessel is going to dissolve. And I'll make a couple points about that uh, a little later as well. So here I am. I'm at PBI. I'm at this fellowship. And I'm saying, brother, this guy did a great job. Carl Deems, you might have known him. And uh, man, he was just amazing. I said, he made that look so easy. I went up to him after and said, brother, I'm panic-stricken. I've got all this anxiety. Is there anything you can tell me that might help me kind of uh, get a little settled so I can actually you know, prepare a sermon and get up in front of people and do it? He said, brother, just do what I do. Just tell the people what you're going to tell them, then go ahead and tell them, and then, number three, tell them what you told them. Huh. Okay. This is it. This is the outline for the day. We're going to be talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And I would encourage you to ask yourself in your own mind right now, are you prepared for that judgment seat of Christ? I have no idea how much you may or may not know about it. But I think if you're honest, the more you do know about it, the more you'd say, I'm probably not as prepared as I'd like to be. So what are we going to cover? We're going to cover when exactly is that judgment seat of Christ. We're going to cover what is the judgment seat of Christ. Not what I say it is, but what our King James Bible tells us it is. And then we're going to cover why, in fact, we should prepare for it. And then the real meat of the message is going to be how do we prepare for that judgment seat of Christ? And to make that understandable and to help you under, not only understand it, but remember it, I'm going to show you the eight stages that an earthly potter puts clay through. And then we're going to compare those eight stages of the clay process with the eight stages of the sanctification process. Now that word sanctification, that just means to be Christ-like, to be holy, to be set apart for service. That's what it really means. And uh, if you're going to fulfill your potential to please the Lord, then you need to allow him to sanctify you. And that's something you need to surrender to embrace, I guess I would say. So the bottom line is I'm here today to encourage you, to motivate you, to stir you up to action, to get out there and be a little more uh, concerned about redeeming the time. And, and do something during the remaining days of your salvation that you know will survive that fiery trial at the judgment seat of Christ. So, by way of introduction, and let me say this right now. Because you came to Sunday school, I'm going to put this in Baptist terminology, what has to do with eating. Uh, because you came to Sunday school, you were getting dessert, okay? The appetizer and part of the main course will start in the worship service, but the real meat of this message, which is going to be this sanctification process, that's going to be this evening. And if you're like I was for 30 years unsurrendered, I probably don't expect to see you tonight. But if you really want to know that you can do things, and know, like you know 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, yet you may know that you have eternal life. That's a great verse. I like that verse. I like knowing and I'm going to spend eternal life in a real place called heaven. Wouldn't you like to know that you've done some works that are going to survive the fiery trial at the judgment seat of Christ? That's what I'm going to cover so that you know that you know that you know that the works you are allowing God to do through you will actually survive that fiery trial. And it may surprise you because you can do all kinds of good things. I can do all kinds of good things 
But if I don't do them while I'm partaking of God's divine nature of charity, if I do those things in my own strength, guess what? They go through the spiritual fire and they come out as ashes. So we'll cover all that a little later. When I was uh, probably 10, 11, started using a telephone. By the way, they had a dial back then. This was like the late 50s. Uh, you put your finger in one of those openings in that dial, and you dialed 411, and you got that information. And a live person actually came on the other end of that phone and said, what number do you want? I like that number because it reminds me of, I think, one of my great verses in our Bible. Not that there are any of them that aren't great. But that Revelation 411, that gives us the meaning of life, if you don't know it. That verse says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Simply put, everything God created, including you, including me, He created to get pleasure from those things. And He tells us right in that one verse packed with information how we can bring Him the pleasure. If we will do things that honor him, things that glorify him, things that demonstrate his power working through us, that pleases him. You could, you could summarize that by saying, you simplify it by saying, he created us to glorify him, and that pleases him. All right? That brings me to the word works down there at the bottom. Because uh, I know I'm in a church that you know salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But the very next verse says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, he told him that uh, if we would purge ourselves from some things, that we could be vessels unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, sanctified, and prepared unto every good work. So the Bible right there, writing through Paul, tells us that God will prepare us to do those good works that he created us to do. How's he going to do that? Well, number one, he gives us his words. The Bible also said in 2 Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Not only does he give us his words, but he gives us something equally as important. God gives us his grace. And that Bible says God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Listen, we are not saved by doing works, but we certainly bring God the pleasure we were created to get saved and then allow him to do those good works through us. I hope you understand that. Matter of fact, when Paul wrote to Tim, uh, Titus, he told him that, um, uh, he reminded him really that God gave his life for us, Jesus Christ gave his life for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. <laughs> it's all throughout that Bible. Well, Let's get into the clay here a little bit. You're in Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 8. The Bible says, but now, O God, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter. But now, Lord, thou art the father, we are the clay, and thou art potter. We are all the work of thy hand. 
I think that verse is very instructive. If you realize it didn't say we are like clay or as clay, it said that we are clay. We are all the work of thy hand. Uh, I'll tell you this, if it hasn't obvious to you already, but the more you understand about clay, the more you're going to understand about your Savior and your Creator, and the more you're going to understand about how God wants to sanctify you, mold you, shape you, and turn you into that vessel unto honor I already mentioned. Okay? So, by the way, isn't it interesting that God, uh, who spoke so many things into existence in Genesis, isn't it interesting that he didn't speak us into existence? He took some of those things he spoke into existence, like clay, and then he used that clay to form man with his hands. The name Adam from Genesis 2-7, when it says the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, that dust was clay, breathed in his nostril the breath of life, man became a living soul. That name Adam means red-brown earth. Now, the clay you see me working with is kind of a grayish color, but clay comes in all kinds of colors. And uh, obviously that clay that Adam was made out of was a reddish-brown color. You know, Job, who had no Bible, he's complaining to the Lord in Job chapter 10. And he says, uh, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Thou hast made me as the clay. Wilt thou bring me to dust again? How did Job know that? He didn't have a Bible. It tells me Job either spoke directly with God or he spoke with others that spoke directly with God, and probably both of those things. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Thou hast made me as the clay. Wilt thou bring me to dust again? You know, scientists in the 1990s, they left their laboratory up in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and they came down not too far from where I had my pottery shop in South Florida, and they went out into the Florida Everglades. Those scientists, trying to create life in the laboratory, knew enough that they were going to start with clay. And they went out deep into those Florida Everglades in one of those miry bogs where maybe no human had ever been before, and they got themselves some pristine clay. Now, they knew that the DNA of clay and the elements, compounds, and minerals in man are almost the exact same things. I've seen those two very long lists. And uh, the first, I mean, each one of those lists is the same thing over and over. It's like 50 different items. It's just different percentages. Now, when you get down to the bottom of each list, and I think in one list there's two different things, and in the other list there might be one different thing. But we are basically clay. And if you understand that, I think when we get to heaven, we're not going to be surprised to find out that this man who is born blind, you know, there's a chapter in the Gospel of John, and in that chapter uh, 9 of the Apostle John wrote, um, talks about this man that was born blind and Jesus Christ healed him. If you know the story, he took some clay. He took some clay and anointed the eyes of that blind man and then he had that blind man wash that clay residue off his eyes, and that man could see. Well, we know God, God created that man blind on purpose so that during his earthly ministry, he could get glory from healing that man born blind. Well, does it stand to reason? I think this is what we're going to find out when we get to heaven, that what, the reason that man's eyes did not function was that one or two or three of those necessary DNA items that would allow the eye to function were not present, but they were present in the clay. 
So when the clay touched the eyes for a period of time and those DNA items that were lacking absorbed into his eyes, all of a sudden that's all he needed to function. Could be. I can't teach that as a certainty, but it certainly makes sense. Um, turn to Colossians chapter 3. So by way of introduction, I also want to mention something here. We know, uh, maybe you don't know, but clay has a tremendous number of uses. It stands to reason that if God made something that's so abundant and plentiful as clay, that mankind would find hundreds if not thousands of different usages for that clay, and that's the truth. You know, all brick is basically clay. The steel industry uses a, a, just un unbelievable amounts of clay in their processing of steel. Uh, the electrical industry uses steel. Uh, most uh, electrical outlets that have a little porcelain uh, fixture part of them, that's clay. Porcelain's a type of clay. Clay is used to make movies. There's a technique called claymation. Uh, clay is used in musical instruments like whistles and ocarinas and even the, the uh, casings of drums. Clay is used for such glamorous things as kitty litter, you know, as basically clay. And how about another glamorous thing called kaopectate? That's kaolin is a type of clay. Clay is used, you know, uh, if you've uh, got a magazine at home and you hold it and you hold it next to a, uh, a normal piece of newspaper, you know, newspaper is kind of dull, and ma most magazine paper is shiny. The difference between those two papers is something to do with the clay that's injected into that paper that's shiny and glossy. I mean, I could go on and on about the clay. It's actually used for the tiles of the space shuttle. That's the only thing that they could find that could withstand the incredible temperature that was created by the reentry of Earth's atmosphere for that space shuttle. So those tiles of the space shuttle are made out of clay. This is what clay looks like when it's dug out of the ground. Uh, even the youngest of these children up here would recognize, how, you can't use this clay just the way it is. I can't certainly use it the way it is. By the way, potters, like myself, can make uh, almost an infinite number of different things. There's nothing you can't shape out of clay. And most of those things can be very functional. So my point is this. Clay, to be used to its fullest potential, has to be processed. And the point I'm trying to make is you and I, to be used to our fullest potential, to please the Lord to our fullest potential, we have to be processed too. That's called the sanctification process. Now, while you're in Colossians, I want to make this point. The moment you and I got saved, uh, five or six things happened to us immediately. We, were, we had a dead spirit, and now our spirit was made alive. We were born again. We were placed in Christ. Christ was placed in us. A spiritual circumcision took place. Okay, that's where the swollen spirit are uh, cut away from the body of sinful flesh. We were also sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Those things happened immediately, simultaneously, with us trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are other things. By the way, the reason, the guy, reason God gave us the Holy Spirit is because that's, the Bible calls that the earnest of the possession. And what that's all about is the fact that, I'm looking for something up here. Can't find it. The earnest of our possession, that's about uh, God saying, listen, I'm going to give you, I'm promising you a glorified body one day. That's one of the things you don't get at salvation. 
but it's a promise that you will receive it one day. Uh, you're going to promise that one day you will spend eternity in a real place called heaven, more specifically New Jerusalem. So those are promises, and they come with salvation. However, there are things in the Bible that are earned inheritance, earned rewards, that God will potentially bless you with as well at the judgment seat of Christ. So I encourage all of you, I think the Apostle Paul uh, used the word inheritance a dozen times, and then there's a few other times in the New Testament, but that's a nice little study. Oftentimes the word inheritance refers to those things I just mentioned, the things you get automatically with salvation. Sometimes they refer to things that you and I potentially can earn, and oftentimes they refer to both of those. Okay, and you only know that by the context. So I want to look at some of these verses that indicate an earned inheritance. Okay, because that's part of what we're going to be talking about at the judgment seat of Christ. Here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, knowing... And, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. And what's the key to getting it? The next clause, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Go to Second John 8. Your earned inheritance, my earned inheritance, is going to be dependent on three or four things. Really, it's dependent on sanctification at its core. But that's composed of us either serving and or suffering and or sacrificing, okay? Those things are kind of all intertwined, and they intertwine to make up uh, us embracing what's called a sanctification process. So 2 John 8 says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Again, <laughs> that's... Uh, John, writing that epistle, just reminding believers, hey, look to yourselves that you get everything that God's got for you. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 20. I mean, I was just reading this morning. I'm not going to cover all these verses. I was just reading this morning uh, in Act, uh, Romans 8.17, talking about, uh, well, the verse 8.18 says, uh, for we reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Right? You know that God wants you and I to get glory as well? I mean, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, said, um, I think I've got it here in my notes. It says in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. That's not talking about one thing. That's talking about two things. Paul's telling Timothy, I want you to get that salvation, not just salvation, but the one that comes with eternal glory. And I was just, I was just reading this in, in Romans because there's just so many verses that I could bring forth about this. Um, let me find it. It's in Romans chapter 8. It says, uh, and if children, you know, it says in 16 in Romans 8, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer, there's that suffer tied into this, with him we may be also glorified together. I mean, now there's lots of ways you could interpret that, 
but I think it clears it up in the next verse. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Anyway, it goes on to say that this glory, if you tie that with 2 Timothy, it's all about us getting glory as well. Paul reminded Timothy twice. He said um, uh, something about suffering for well-doing. That's escaping me a little bit. I'll come back to it. But anyway, here in, in Acts chapter 20, I'm going to stay with the parent here. Uh, Acts chapter 20, the context is here is the Apostle Paul, and he is, uh, he's just finishing up his third missionary journey. And uh, he's uh, gone through Ephesus on his way heading east, and now he's coming back west. He's on a boat, and he's on this ship, and he, stopped, he stops at a little coastal town called Miletus. It's not too far from Ephesus. And he summons the elders from Ephesus, realizing he will not see them uh, again this side of glory. And he wants to see them one more time face to face. And so he summons those elders from Ephesus, and he reminds them, hey, I have not failed to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Uh, beware of the false doctrine. Grievous wolves may enter in and things like that. And then he says in verse uh, 32 of Acts 20, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. There it is again, that sanctification process tied to an inheritance. One of the ways you and I could think about this is that our inheritance is already the earned inheritance, the one that you get not automatically, but by earning, that inheritance is already reserved for you and I in heaven. But will we have access to get it when we get up there or not? That's the question. And you know, God put it up there for us, and he wants us to have access to it. He's not going to make it hard. He's going to make it quite easy, but it does require some effort on our, on our parts. And you know what our big effort is? Our effort is to make ourselves available. And that's pretty simple. But oh, too often... Oh, too often, we are unavailable because we've made ourselves available to our own purposes, our own desires, our own pleasures, thinking nothing about our eternal pleasure and sacrifice. Boy, everything we lay up in heaven is eternally compounding interest forever. Boy, so many people prepare for retirement in this life, but for too few of us prepare adequately for that retirement that's eternal, and that's real. This, this life is like a vapor. This life isn't really real. Turn to Acts chapter 26. In Acts 26, Paul's giving his personal testimony to King Agrippa. And he's, uh, he's telling him, he's really giving his whole life story, talking about how he used to persecute the, the church and all that. And then it goes into great detail about what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And I'll paraphrase a, little bit, paraphrase a little bit in verse 16, where Christ said he appeared to him for this purpose, to make him a minister and a witness. He says down in the verse uh, 17 that he's going to send Paul at the end of 17 to the Gentiles. And then we'll begin reading in verse 18 of Acts 26. Why is he sending it to the Gentiles? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive two things. Forgiveness of sins, that's salvation, and inheritance 
among them which are sanctified. And there it is again. That's all I'm going to cover on that. I hope that's enough for you, but if you need more, just go to your Bible and, and start doing these cross-references. Study that word inheritance. God wants to bless you and I with that earned inheritance. Matter of fact, at the end of verse 20 in Acts 26, it says, they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. That's the key to the sanctification process, allowing God to use us during the days of our salvation. All right, let's get back on the clay. Go to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah, a very uh, surrendered Old Testament prophet, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah in verse 2 of chapter 18 and says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Now, if that was me in my unsurrendered state, I'd probably say, Lord, I can hear you perfectly fine. What do I have to get up and go down to the potter's house for? Well, uh, I'll tell you, Jeremiah was going to be given a very important message from the Lord. So important, he didn't want him to just hear that message he wanted him to see that message. And I could say the same thing for you this morning. God's got a very important message for you. So important, he doesn't want you to just hear it. He does want you to see it. You say, I still don't understand why that's important. Well, secular educators or any of your Sunday school teachers would probably tell you that a person only remembers about 10% of what they hear one time. That is super discouraging for your pastors, for your Sunday school teachers, for employers, for parents. It's, it's discouraging for everybody. But if you can add something visual to that audible, that learning, that retention, that remembrance goes up by 500%. This message is, is nothing special because I'm here, but this message is something special because God wants you to see it and not just hear it. Jeremiah didn't hesitate. Uh, then Jeremiah speaks in verse 3 and says, Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. If you want to know why the word wheel is plural, you can ask me afterwards. I'd be happy to tell you. Verse 4, The vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Now, what does that word marred mean to you? Do you think when the potter was shaping some vessel on the potter's wheel, something like, I'm trying to get this a little bigger here. The vessel that he made was made of clay, marred in the hand of the potter. You might think the potter's up there working on the potter's wheel and shaping some kind of just simple vase like this, maybe. Maybe he's working up at the top here and the phone rings or something and he gets distracted and he bumps into that. And you say, oh, he just marred that. Well, I would know what you mean by that. But is that what God means when he uses the word marred? And by the way, how do we find out what God means? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do right off. You may have that Webster's 1828 dictionary, but I'd say before you look at that, before you go to a Greek or Hebrew concordance, before you go to some uh, commentator on what they've got in there, why don't you just look in your King James Bible? The law first mentioned holds true in this particular case, and that principle says the first time a word is mentioned in our Bible, God usually defines it. Well, he, just, he did that very thing when he first mentioned the word marred in Isaiah. And that's Isaiah prophesying about what would happen to the Lord Jesus Christ some 600 years in the future. It talks about how his visage, meaning his appearance, would be marred more than that of any man. 
Now, if you know anything about what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, even before he got on that cross at Calvary, you know that he didn't even look human by the time he got up on that cross. Here's what Jeremiah saw. He saw that potter working on some type of vessel. And that vessel was probably very symmetrical, and you could almost not even tell the oil was spinning because it was so symmetrical. But at some point, it probably started to wobble a little bit and get a little out of sorts. And maybe that just continued to get worse. But pretty soon, it was marred in the hand of the potter. This is what he saw. Then he saw this. He saw that potter take that marred vessel and push it back down, trying to put it into a solid lump as best he could. And then he saw this. He saw that potter take that clay and pluck it up off the potter's wheel and take it over to his wedging table. What is a wedging table? It's just a very strong table. It has a absorbent surface on it so that the clay does not stick to it. And most all wedging tables has a sharp wire attached to them. It allows the potter to hold a sizable amount of clay with two hands and then cut that clay in half. Now when I cut this marred lump in half, what was a marred vessel, you can see it's no longer a solid lump of clay. It's got all kinds of air pockets in it. Potter can't, as a matter of fact, if I was to pull this open, you know, it's just full of, it's, it's humanly impossible to take a vessel that was shaped on a potter's wheel and push it back down into a, sol a solid lump of clay. It's going to fold in on top of itself, and you can understand what air is like in an underinflated balloon. That air is just trapped in there, and there's nowhere for it to go. So the potter has that problem. He has another problem. If you've been watching me make these vessels up here, you've seen me continually dipping my hand and this sponge into this water so that I can bring that water over to the vessel I'm working on, squeeze that sponge, the water comes out. And I'm lubricating the interior surface and the exterior surface of the vessels I'm working on so that my hands don't stick to those vessels, but they slide on the surface of the clay. As I am lubricating those surface areas, those areas are getting softer and softer, whereas the inner part of that wall of clay, that's the same firmness that I started with. So the two problems are number one, the air pockets, and number two, the clay needs to be homogenized. Parts of it can't be a different firmness or softness than the rest of it. It has to be the exact same firmness throughout the lump. Now, this is called the wedging process, and I'm going to go over it a little bit, but not to this detail when we go into the sanctification process during the worship service. So pay attention as to what's going on right now. I hope you remember. Here's a quick quiz. Who's the potter? God. Who's the clay? We are. Does this look like something you want to go through? This is you. And some of you are very familiar with this. Matter of fact, I did it eight times, so it represents something that's happened to your pastor, I think, eight times. Bam. This is not something you and I want to go through again if we don't have to. Because you had to go through this at least once already. This is what I'm talking about. You can learn from this. This is something you desperately want to avoid if you can. Now, look back in verse 4. The vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. 
It does not say that the potter made the clay, marred the clay. You and I, look up here, nice and smooth. Got all the air pockets out of it, it's homogenized. This is called the wedging process. You and I bear responsibility for being marred in the hand of the potter. Before we look at our spiritual application, let's look at the application doctrinally for the nation of Israel. What did the potter do? He took that marred vessel, he plucked it up off the potter's wheel, took it over there, pulled it down, and then wedged it. He worked it over after it was totally destroyed. Look at the end of verse 7. I'm not making this stuff up. Verse 7, the last words, plucked up, pulled down, destroyed. Now, Jeremiah's message was to be given to the nation of Israel because they'd been disobedient to God and his commandments. And because of that, God said, this is what I'm going to do to them. You need to tell them. But for you and I, the spiritual application is just as important because you and I can become marred in the hand of the, the potter. How? By unconfessed, unrepented sin. One on top of another on top of another. God is trying to shape us and form us into that vessel unto honor, the one that's sanctified to meet for the master's use. But if we become marred in the hand of the potter because we have unconfessed, unrepented sin, one on top of another on top of another, God can no longer continue to shape us and mold us. He has to pluck us above the potter's wheel, take us back over here, and work us over a little bit. It's a picture. It's a picture of God loving you enough to not throw away the clay, but loving you enough to discipline you, to correct you, to try to bring you back to him through affliction. Okay? That's what it's a picture of. So oftentimes when I do this illustration, I'll get people that will come up to me afterwards and say, Brother Ingeseth, I it really kind of discourages me because I realize I can no longer fulfill God's plan A for my life. To which I say, well, get over it. <laughs> God's got a plan B for your life that's so much better than anything you or I could ever come up with. And if I'm honest, I'm on plan J, K, L, somewhere in there. I'm not sure. So, um, you know, Joel Osteen would never tell you about the negative picture of unconfessed, unrepented sin. But something Joel would tell you about is this is a picture of God's love, God's mercy, God's long-suffering towards us, and that's a picture we should enjoy as well, okay? So praise, praise Joel for that one. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians. Our Bible is filled with verses that talk about vessels. And that's what you and I are. We are a vessel of clay. The Bible talks about vessels that are worthy, vessels that are unworthy. There's vessels unto honor, vessels unto dishonor. There's vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath, vessels wherein is no pleasure. There's also vessels uh, where Peter talked about giving honor unto the weaker vessel. That's about the husband respecting the wife. It refers to the wife as the weaker vessel. And, and men, I want to encourage you that God didn't say give honor unto the weak vessel. He said the weaker vessel because we are all just weak vessels. We really are. My favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. The Apostle Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I don't even have to read the rest of the verse. I have two questions. Number one, what is that treasure? Well, that's explained in verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, 
hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's talking about if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you certainly have a knowledge of God's glory. And if you do, then he's put a treasure inside of you. And that treasure, likened to a light, is a picture of the Holy Spirit sealed inside of a believer until the day of redemption. Matter of fact, in, in verse 4, that same chapter talks about the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the treasure. The treasure is the light, the picture of the Holy Spirit inside of us. My second question is, okay, God, if it's so valuable, and I believe it is, why, oh, why do you put it in something as fragile as an earthen vessel? I mean, look up here. That one vessel just dissolved. That's how fragile it was because it hadn't gone all the way through the H-stage process. This one up here, just a little bit of effort, and it's distorted. I can distort it decoratively or randomly, but I'm just saying, you're going to put your treasure in something weak like that? I thought it was valuable. Aren't you going to try to protect it? Look at the rest of the verse. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It kind of brings us full circle right back to Isaiah 64.8. God said, I'm making you out of clay. Understand that clay has no value, okay? Now, if I take possession of their clay and do something with it, according to my purposes and pleasure, then it has some value. If that valueless clay does allow God to use it for his glory, then that valueless clay needs to recognize it's not the valueless clay doing it, it's God doing it through us. That's just what that verse is saying. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of power may be of God and not of us. You know, there's a wonderful series of verses, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Judges chapter 7, Gideon's told by uh, God to go down and destroy 125,000 Midianites. Take your army down there, destroy them. They're in a valley. And Gideon has 32,000 men in his army. The Lord says, you got too many men, so put them through a test. He does, gets the number down to 10,000. Lord says, that's still too many. Puts them through another test. Finally gets that number down to 300. Now, the battle strategy, most of you know about this. The battle strategy is this. Gideon gives each of those 300 men an earthen pitcher. They've got that in one hand. Inside of that earthen pitcher is a burning lamp. In the other hand, he gives them a trumpet. He takes those 300 men and they surround the Midianites. They go, Gideon's men go up on the hillsides and the mountaintops around that valley. And in the darkest hour of the night, all 300 of them break the earthen pitcher, exposing that light. They shout, Sword of the Lord and of Gideon! And then they just stand on there and blow on the trumpets. <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if I had the faith to follow that battle strategy. But it was very effective. The Bible says that those Midianites, so dazed, so startled, so confused, they wake up and all they see is all this fire around them. They hear the shouting, the, the clanging of the earth and pitchers breaking. They're surrounded by fire and the shouting and the blowing and the trumpets, all of that. And they just grab their sword, spears, knives, and they start stabbing in the dark. The Bible says that 120,000 of them killed their fellow soldiers. The other 15,000 are tracked down by Gideon's 300. They're destroyed as well. Not one single man in Gideon's army is lost in that battle. <laughs> now, you and I know that God can certainly do and accomplish his purposes however he wants to, by whatever means he wants to. 
But you have to ask yourself, is there a reason, some unhidden reason or whatever, why that particular battle strategy? God doesn't do anything by accident. I think that particular battle strategy was performed to shed light on 2 Corinthians 4.7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. In their case, that light was only affected when the earthen vessel was broken, exposing the light. And there may be more to it as well, but that's the part I want to focus on. Listen, we have a treasure in an earthen vessel. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God. Now, what can God do through you if you make yourself available to him? Let me put it this way. What can't, what can't God do if you make... There is nothing God can't do if we make ourselves available to him. I, I read this book. I'll never forget the quote in it. It was written by a major, Ian Thomas. He went home to be with the Lord about 10 years ago. And uh, a pastor had given me uh, one of his books called the, the Saving Life of Christ and the Mystery of Godliness. It's kind of a two-volume set. And he told me how important those those books have been in his life. So I read them, and I've read them several times. And one of the quotes I got from Major Ian Thomas is this. All of the inexhaustible supplies of God are available to the man that makes himself available to all the inexhaustible supplies of God. And I think that's true. I, I think that, and the inexhaustible supplies are anything you can think of. I'm talking about grace, Mercy, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, uh, faith, meekness, temperance, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the eight divine characters, anything you can think of, happiness, joy, satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment, that's it. God has an inexhaustible supply of those, and that supply is available to any man, woman, or child that makes themselves available to that inexhaustible supply. Listen, God can do anything through us that he wants to do. That's not to say that during the age that we live in, he wants us to heal the sick or raise the dead or any of that stuff. If you're rightly dividing the Bible, you know that's got its time and place. But boy, there are no excuses for not making ourselves available to God so that we can bring him pleasure during the days of our salvation. All right, I think that's as far as we're going to take it. We're going to take a 10-minute break, and then uh, I guess we'll come back at 10.30, and we'll really start to drill down on this outline. Specifically, we're going to cover when, what, and why, and we'll cover the clay process. We'll get that far during the worship service. Amen? Okay, you are dismissed.